Lost in the Middle, America's Political Orphans is brought to you by the American Property Owners Alliance, safeguarding the dream of property ownership. Episode 4. How the sale of a used car in 1995 blew up the American media. I'm standing on a rooftop looking out over London. At the moment, everything is quiet. CBS's reputation as a journalism giant began on the rooftops of London during World War II with the iconic Edward R. Murrow. Off to my left, far away in the distance, I can see just that faint red angry snap of anti-aircraft bursts against the steel blue sky. Walter Cronkite's national ratings at his peak in the 1970s would make it the number one rated show on TV today with a U.S. population that is now twice its size. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. And today, this is what passes for news on the network's legendary 60 Minutes, Marjorie Taylor Greene. People say that you are Trump in high heels. I didn't intentionally style myself after President Trump, but I can see how people draw those similarities. We both come from the same industry, construction. Um, I also have pretty much a plain speaking style, and, and so does he. Lord help me. I spent 14 years in TV winning Emmy Awards at stops in Seattle and Washington, D.C., but this is not the journalism I signed up for when I went to Northwestern's journalism school. In our ticket-splitting episode, we introduce you to Rich Thau, who runs focus groups, where he probes people on candidates and issues. As a favor to me, he asked a focus group in Michigan about trust in the media. These are 13 swing voters from around the state. He asked people often to raise their hands, yes or no, on questions. The first time I watched this response, all I could think of was the exchange in Ferris Bueller's day off. Bueller? Bueller? Anyone? Anyone? Show of fingers. Who thinks the media in the U.S. is even-handed? None of you? No. Okay. And when he asked participants about their skepticism, listen to this response. I believe that they report what they're being paid to report. For instance, if it's run by someone that is primarily democratic, they're going to report things that are pro-democratic and con for Republicans and vice versa. If it's owned by someone who's Republican, it's going to be pro-Republican, con-Democrat. By a show of fingers, how many of you agree with Lori's comment? Wow, nearly all of you. During his heyday, Walter Cronkite was the most trusted person in America. Gallup polling says today, two out of three Americans have little or no faith in the media. That's bad news for a democracy which needs an informed electorate, and that makes decisions very tough for swing centrist voters. I'm Scott Klug. I've been an Emmy award-winning reporter, a four-term member of Congress, and a federal lobbyist. And like a huge swath of the American public, I'm lost in the middle. 
This 14-part podcast explains how we got into this mess, where the extremes now pass for the normal. And we're going to try to understand when politics turned into a blood sport and gleefully point the fingers at some of the people we think are to blame. And we'll offer up some green shoots of hope on how America can turn it all around. Hang with me as we walk through a series of media trends that have all impacted voter behavior. The shrill tone of cable TV, the roots of news bias, the newspaper desert across the United States, the relationships between local news coverage and ticket splitting. But first, let's talk about an important moment when TV news pivoted from low-key Walter Cronkite broadcasts to a full-on clown show. When I worked at King TV in Seattle, local television was at its heyday. The networks had incredibly high ratings and money was pouring in. One of my friends was a talented producer who created a highly rated and highly profitable local program. Randy Douthit from time to time used to give me a ride home since we lived in the same neighborhood. About the same time I jumped ship to television in D.C., Randy left too, and we'd lost touch with each other. But when I got elected to Congress, I got a phone message and an invitation from him. Oh yeah, the phone message was to appear on Crossfire. My friend Randy had created the show, and he freely admits he'd tell his co-host to amp it up and create conflict. Bob, the well, question is not whether it's okay uh, to burn the flag. It's not on top of the bill. But it is. Don't speak to me like that. I, hey, don't don't say, say that's not going to be You don't go there. That is. I- the show was a top 10 hit, and its weekly verbal pie throwing stayed on the air for decades. Maine professor Michael Sokolow is a CNN alum, and his dad was Walter Cronkite's producer. Political talk shows have always been a stable of network TV. Keep in mind that before Crossfire, there was Point Counterpoint on 60 Minutes. And before Point Counterpoint, even in the mid-60s, there was Firing Line with Buckley, where he would interview Muhammad Ali and Noam Chomsky. So there's a history of respectful exchange on television. What Crossfire did is it turned it into sports talk. Do you think the Founding Fathers really had the First Amendment, that they gave us the First Amendment to defend songs that glorify Satanism and incest and suicide? You really believe Absolutely. That? You really believe yeah, that? Yeah, I believe it. Oh, oh, you're Mr. an idiot then. Mr. Yeah? Mr. You're an idiot. Mr. I'll tell you what, kiss my <laughs> How do you well, like that? The show, a CNN staple for nearly 30 years, was finally pulled from the air after a tongue lashing from comedian Jon Stewart. I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have uh, privately amongst my friends and also in occasional newspapers and television shows (laughs) mentioned uh, this show as being uh, uh, bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and I wanted to, I felt that that wasn't fair and I should come here and, and tell you that I don't, it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. This, you're doing theater when you should be doing debate, which would be great. No, it's it's, it's not, not honest. What you do is not honest. What you do is partisan hackery. The Stewart interview killed the show. It was canceled the very next day. But my old friend Randy pushed back hard on all the criticism. Why does he get to say this, that democracy is damaged and we have to listen to it? It's freedom of speech. What is wrong with you, my friend? What's wrong with you? Freedom of speech. You know, uh, some of these people take it too far. You know, they're, they're screaming fire in a theater. Can't have that. So when you watch cable news today and, you you, you know, you turn on MSNBC and Fox and CNN and whatever, um, what, what's your read on the, on the current sort of zeitgeist on political coverage? Uh, well, everybody's taking sides now. They didn't, it wasn't like that before. Uh, 
you know, CNN was a balanced, it was a truly balanced news program, but not anymore. You know, should they be giving their opinions? You know, it's like, well, do you believe them? I mean, do you, are you cognizant of the fact that they're expressing their opinions and not just telling the story? You know, I think it could be dangerous. I think it absolutely could be dangerous. But sheepishly, Randy quietly admits in some ways that his baby in turn gave birth to the madness that's Fox and MSNBC. But, but in all fairness to everybody else, I'm probably just as guilty. You know, I think you just pointed that out, that, that, that uh, I'm one of those that cr- created a, a, a bit of a monster. Well, what happened to Randy? Well, he took the lessons he learned from Crossfire to create an even bigger hit. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. This is Judge Judy. Judge Judy, you can't make that up. Is it really that hard to connect those dots? But the old world he left behind is a tough business slog these days. The economics are squeezing the cable networks and forcing them to lean hard into their audience, extreme right or fringe left. Michael Sokolow, one more time. What's happening now, and this is very recent, I would say this is within the last 18 months to two years, is cord cutting has accelerated so much and people have dropped their subscriptions so much that the need to appeal to your core viewer who's going to keep paying, who's also your advertising demographic, has become much, much more important. And so you find MSNBC going further to the left, you find Fox News going further to the right, because those are the demographics that are willing to pay to keep their cable bill and to buy the advertising. And so that's essentially the process we're in right now. What surprises me is how much it's accelerated in the last two years. The cable news outlets, by historic standards, have tiny audiences. Remember the kerfuffle about Trump's appearance before a live audience on CNN in the summer of 23? The appearance that night had one-third of the ratings of Wheel of Fortune and less than Judge Judy. Audiences are down because people are convinced television news is slanted. For a nuanced analysis, check out a website called All Sides. We have a link on our website, lossmiddle.com. Its editors would claim that every outlet, print, broadcast, internet, they're all biased. Its founders came out of the early tech world at Microsoft, and they were frustrated because rather than the internet bringing people together, it was sorting them out into warring camps. Did you know that low housing supply is the primary driver of rising home prices? This locks buyers out of the market and increases the tax burden for current owners. We need elected officials to implement common-sense solutions that will increase housing supply and put the dream of home ownership back within reach. Hold your representatives accountable to support real solutions to improve affordability. Join us today at PropertyOwnersAlliance.org. Julie Mastrain runs the All Sides Bias Project, which has been analyzing stories since 2012. They like to use three-person panels to review material, one Republican, one Democrat, and one Independent. It scores coverage based strictly on the language in the reporting. What they've established is a media chart. They use multiple touch points to score bias. And here's just one example. But we do train our bias reviewers on what to look for that can show bias. And word choice is probably one of the biggest indicators of bias. Um, So a really obvious example of that would be, is the media outlet calling 
uh, immigrants illegal aliens or are they calling them unauthorized migrants or um, asylum seeking migrants or something like that. So some of the language that we see from the left on that issue kind of softens the issue and kind of uh, obscures the illegality of the act. And then the word choice we see from the right focuses more on the illegality of what's going on. The research splits the media into five silos. Far left, MSNBC is here. Left, the New York Times. Center, Reuters and the BBC. Leans right, the Wall Street Journal. And far right, Fox and Newsmax. And she's delighted that all the media camps grouse. Mostly we get people who are really grateful for what we're doing. I'd say that's the overwhelming amount of feedback. People know that they're in a very messy and polarized media environment. And I think they're grateful for people who are out there trying to give a meta analysis and help people sort through all the muck and the noise. But then we do sometimes get accused of being right wing, sometimes get accused of being left wing. And we figure we're doing a good job if we're getting accusations from both sides um, and kind of angering both sides in different ways. Look at the demographics of the reporters who work for the major media outlets. It's a bubble. In fact, it's both a geographic and a political bubble. Talk about diversity in the workforce. Pollster Nate Silver of 538 pointed out the epidemic of groupthink in the media, in part explained by the fact that only 7% of journalists self-identify as Republicans. When Trump won the election in 2016, national reporters were stunned. Following that election, Jack Schaefer, the media columnist at Politico, did a deep dive on the demographics of the national press. From Jack's story, 72% of all internet publishing or newspaper employees work in a county that Hillary Clinton won. As Jack concluded, quote, so when your conservative friends use media as a synonym for coastal and liberal, they're not far off the mark, end of quote. I wish there would have been a little bit more introspection on the part of journalists about why do people think you're biased as opposed to just brushing it off. You know, smugness is not a business model. Meet Charlie Sykes, former newspaper reporter, radio talk show host, and now columnist. What's making it worse and worse is as you have this bifurcation of the media into these alternative realities and, and it's different audiences where they, they will feed the audience what the audience is expecting and it wants. And if it doesn't, there'll be tremendous backlash. You're seeing this at Fox, but you're also seeing this at other outlets as, as, as well. So let's turn off the TV for a while and switch to the newspaper world and its impact on today's political zeitgeist. There's no way to tell exactly where, but the death spiral of newspapers started with a used car purchase somewhere in America in about 1995. Might have been an 84 Oldsmobile Cutlass, for all we know. That's when the first transaction happened on Craigslist. For anyone under 30, this sounds a bit bizarre, but for years, huge classified sections in Sunday newspapers is where most people shop for cars, houses, and jobs. Classifieds were a $19 billion business before Craigslist. 90% of it has since disappeared. And the business just got worse. At the same time, subscriptions were dropping because readers were scrolling through online sources, which were free and a lot more convenient. The arrival of mobile devices accelerated that trend. Paul Gillen is a former reporter who started a website called ominously Newspaper Death Watch. It wasn't one event, but it was a sequence of events triggered by the Internet that between about 1995 and 2010 uh, virtually destroyed the industry. 2006 was the, was the best, newspaper, best year the industry ever had. Uh, in 2005, I, sent, I, I wrote a, an opinion piece 
predicting that the newspaper industry was about to enter a, a cataclysmic death spiral. And I sent it to several newspapers um, and it was rejected by all of them. And I thought, well, no one wants to hear this. I, I thought one thing, you know, they're, they're whistling past the graveyard here uh, because I, I think anybody, I think it was evident to anybody in the technology realm that things were changing rapidly. Newspapers in recent years have been closing at the astonishing rate of two a week, and the few survivors are on life support. How many people open a newspaper every day now? It's it's a tiny it's a tiny number. Uh, we tune to our to our personal sources we trust now, which in many cases are sources that have a political agenda or or a bias, and will tell us what we want to hear. And uh, so our ability to get that objective professionally curated view of what's going on in the world is really gone. Very few people do that anymore. But businesses change, industries come and go. Did anybody cry when electric bulbs replace candles? But this is different. The press plays a vital role in democracy, informing the public, and very importantly, keeping an eye on public officials. Charlie Sykes. You know, newspapers that have just vanished or have become ghost newsrooms. I mean, places that used to have 300 reporters now have 15. Um, so what this means has been the collapse of local journalism, um, which has been really something. So the, the, the watchdog function um, that we used to take for granted has disappeared. I mean, the number of state houses that simply don't have the kinds of reporters they used to have. I mean, As we always try to do in our podcast, first a cautionary tale, and then let's give you a little glimmer of hope. So let's look at a couple of studies that demonstrate how the newspaper desert is impacting our democracy. It's not the same set of values. It's not the same local investment. It's a, a sort of an outdated business model that is being stripped of its parts till they can't do it anymore. Penn State professor Joshua Dyer and two colleagues did a groundbreaking study. Saving money at the local level means fewer reporters and editors, and by default, much more national coverage. So that a lot of the glue that holds communities together disappears. Some of the most locally, civically valuable information doesn't stand a chance. We're in a golden age of national news. National news is plentiful and everywhere. Uh, but when it comes to just the basic minutes of a, a local city council meeting, that's where we're hitting a desert. So we collected a bunch of data on where newspapers had closed. And what we found was that in communities that lost a newspaper, there was about 1.9% less split ticket voting. If you listen to our podcast on ticket splitting, I think it's a sign of a healthy democracy. In the fall of 2022, it surged in governor and Senate races, but the dominance of national news over local is eroding the practice. We use a quote from a, a political science uh, journal article from the 1950s that calls ticket splitting a privilege almost unique to American voters. Like this is not something Europeans do. This is not something people under strong party government do, or even necessarily have the opportunity to do. But mixing and matching parties across levels of government, it, having those decisions informed by local um, local factors has really been def definitional for American government. Then one day, Josh and his two other professor friends got an unusual message from a Palm Springs, California editor. She wanted their help with an experiment. Meet Julie Manikin. Well, I had read this research um, from a trio of academics who were looking at 
news deserts. And interestingly, what they said was that um, when local news goes away, that people don't stop consuming news, they just consume more national news and that they bring the toxicity of national news down to the local level. Um, when I got to Palm Springs, the newspaper there was publishing, you know, a fair number of um, nationally syndicated columns about um, Trump, inside the Beltway politics, a lot of stuff that felt very, very far away from Little Palm Springs, California. And so um, I really believe in the opinion section. I always love reading letters to the editor. I feel it's sort of the window into the soul of a community. Keep in mind that her paper, The Desert Sun, was part of the largest newspaper chain in America. Gannett owns 217 daily newspapers and a small cargo ship full of weeklies. Its national headquarters is in suburban Washington, which was a world away. And Julie conspired with the editor, without asking permission, God bless her, to take a vacation from the national partisanship. Her directive to the opinion page editor was simple. For a month, the Sun would not carry a single national columnist and would not publish a single letter about national issues only columns and letters about local community issues. Before the experiment started, Josh and his colleagues polled Julie's readers in Palm Springs and readers of the Ventura County Star located about 175 miles north in California. The Star, as usual, packed its opinion pages with columns of dueling D.C. camps. And after the experiment was over, Josh and the other professors were back in the field interviewing subscribers. It basically showed that polarization continued to rise in Ventura and in Palm Springs. It either like stopped or started to kind of reverse. Within a year, Gannett started to offer early buyouts to opinion page editors all across the country. And yes, including the 25-year veteran at the Desert Sun, who essentially understood he had to take the money and run. I was, you know, really sad to lose Al. Um, but, uh, you know, understood his personal reasons for doing that. But I didn't want to lose the opinion pages. And so um, around that time, people in the community had started talking to me like, hey, we can tell that the Desert Sun newspaper is, you know, not doing so well. You know, is there anything we can do to help? So I said, you know, I called their bluff. I said, hey, well, I'd love it if we started a local foundation here that could really help support the newsroom. We really don't want the opinion pages to go away. And so we're trying to raise money in the community to, you know, basically make this a community supported forum. And it was really quite amazing. You know, we had 60,000, we were trying to raise $60,000, which was the salary for the opinion editor. Um, and that happened in a matter of like, three months, um, people came forward and we had donations from, you know, $10 to $10,000. The homegrown editor, now funded by the residents, has been on the job for two years and keeping up the drumbeat of celebrating the local community. That's what local journalism should look like. And ironically, a lesson Gannett has now learned the hard way. Gannett recently announced it was about to start hiring for those opinion page slots. It slashed just two years ago because research shows the local spotlight impacts the bottom line. And as we know now, impacts the ballot box too. 
When I was in graduate school at Northwestern, one professor stood out. Think of the actor J.K. Simmons. You saw him in Whiplash, La La Land, Spider-Man. Age him about 25 years and add about 25 pounds. That was Ben Baldwin. And he didn't lecture as much as he barked at the aspiring journalist. Silverstein, he screamed one day at my friend sitting next to me. What do you do when your mother says she loves you? As Stu stammered for an answer and looked around the room for help, Baldwin rubbed his hands over his sweating bald head. And then with a clap of his hands, he said, if she says she loves you, check it out. It was all about the facts. So when you visit a webpage or turn on the TV, remember his admonition to we cub reporters. Be skeptical and check it out. You owe it to yourself, and Lord knows in these days, you owe it to democracy. Here's the team behind Lost in the Middle. Executive producer Jeff Mayers. Producer Todd Elbaugh. Creative team Claudia Luz and Tony Wood. Edited by Aaron Zummers. Music by Brett William. Production at Civic Media. And a quick thanks to our partners at the American Property Owners Alliance.